Hymn 479. Christ is risen, Christ is living, dry your tears, be unafraid. Death and darkness could not hold him, nor the tomb in which he lay. Do not look among the dead for one who lives forevermore. Tell the world that Christ is risen, make it known he goes before. If the Lord had never risen, we'd have nothing to believe. But his promise can be trusted, you will live because I live. As we share the death of Adam, so in Christ we live again. Death has lost its sting and terror, Christ the Lord has come to reign. Death has lost its old dominion, let the world rejoice and shout. Christ, the firstborn of the living, gives us life and leads us out. Let us thank our God who causes hope to spring up from the ground. Christ is risen, Christ is giving life eternal life profound. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty God, as your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, ascended into the heavens, so may we also ascend in heart and mind and continually dwell there with him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week is Psalm 127, verse 2. Let's speak this together. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved rest. Uh, doggone it. I know these by heart, and then I don't look at it. I'm sorry. This should be sleep. Uh, anyway, vain. It is vain. What is, what is vanity? What does this mean? Yeah, okay. Uh, being about yourself. We can say that it's an idolatry of self. Uh, so, it is vain, or it is vanity, for you to rise up early. Hear that, McDonald's crowd? It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, all of you night owls, and to eat the bread of sorrows. Now, 
This is, uh, this is not saying, hey, don't get out of bed early. What's the matter with you? Or don't stay up late. Come on, get some sleep. Uh, this is really about the vanity of self-reliance. So the idolatry of self is self-righteousness and self-reliance. Is self-reliance a good thing? <laughs> it's a trick question. In, in some sense, yes, it is. Uh, but in, an, in the spiritual sense, it is not. Because in the spiritual sense, where do you want your reliance to be? On the self? No, on, on God. So your self-reliance in the tasks that you choose to perform, whether you rise up early, sit up late, or especially eat the bread of sorrows, it's all vanity because it's all focused on you. It's focused on your efforts, on your striving, and none of that will bring salvation to you. Now, the bread of sorrows is important for two reasons. Uh, firstly, what is bread? Or who is bread the food of? Well, yes. And ultimately, that's... That's, that's, you know, why does Christ choose bread to be his body? Uh, because he's fulfilling what bread once was. The food of sinners. Because when does man start eating bread? Think of... When he has to start farming, because he eats before the fall of, well, yeah, but the, the fruits of the garden, everything is provided for him. And after the fall, he eats bread by the sweat of his brow. Bread is the food of the fall. It is the food of sinners. It's the thing that you need to live, and the only reason why you need it to live is because you are fallen. And it's the thing that is given to you to live, that you work for and toil for to sustain your life in a world that is dying. Which is why Jesus is the bread of life, because bread is a food for the dying, but Jesus now turns bread into the food for the living. That's why there's all these types and they always see their fulfillment. Everything is there for a reason. The bread of sorrows. So your bread is the, the food of sinners, and you're to contrast that with not your bread, but now Jesus' bread is what I want to eat. But the fact that it's the bread of sorrows, what does it mean to say the bread of sorrows? Okay, sure, the bread of sin. What do we pray for in the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer? I'm just making sure it's the right petition. Pardon me? Yeah, that's not the sixth petition. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Nevertheless, you knew the right answer. Give us this day our daily bread. So we're praying that God would give us a bread, but all of the bread that we encounter, all of the daily bread of this life, 
I think it's the fourth petition. All of the bread of this life uh, is, a, is a bread of sorrow because it's bread of toil and ultimately bread of death. So all of this stuff is in vain. Oh, you poor little red hen, don't you realize that all of your work and all of that nice bread you made is all simply vanity? Why? For so he, and look, it's capitalized this time for a reason, he and his, who is this? God. God gives his beloved sleep or rest, depending on your translation. Uh, this is important for two, th two reasons. One, this is the lesser reason. God will give you sleep. God will be the one to provide for you. Why worry about forcing yourself to wake up early? God will be the one that will grant you wakefulness. Why worry about staying up late? God will be the one to give you sleep. Why worry about the bread of your toils and the bread of your sorrows? God will be the one to provide you with a new bread. But here is the kicker. Uh, what do I say at, every, at the end of every funeral homily? It's always the same. Now this is a test. It's abbreviated R-I-P. Rest in peace, yeah. Requiescat in pacem. Rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to know you were tracking. Yeah. I'll give you the credit. I was trying to think, he really wants us to say that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have given you so many bonus yeah. points if you, had, if you had said it in the Latin. Yeah, rest in peace. Now think about this. Everything that you strive for in this life is vanity. Even you seeking to preserve your own life is vanity. Why? God's in charge. Well, yeah, God's in charge, but, but the, the attitude, the fear of death, and, and the person who is so afraid of death that he goes to great lengths, incredibly great lengths, just to prolong his life, you know, possibly another month. What's the problem with that? He's not looking forward to meeting Well, yes, but tie it in with, the, with vanity. Oh, we actually think we're in control. Yes, you think you're in control, but there's, there's something more fundamental than that. Who is your God? Yourself. My life in this world, my bodily health, that is my God. And doggone it, I'm going to preserve that God. Now, don't be an idiot. Take care of yourself. This doesn't mean to throw caution to the winds, but the person who becomes so obsessed with my discipline, my structure, my life, my ordering, my health, my blah, 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 it's all vanity. Why? Because the Lord provides sleep to his people. So there is a deeper sense to this verse that really is about the slumber of death. Everything that you do in your waking is in vanity because the Lord at the last is the one who will give you rest, the one who will give you sleep. Uh, okay, let's speak this again. 
It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Uh, good. The Catechism. What shall you say in the evening when you go to bed? I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong, and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Yes, you have graciously kept me this day. Why do you say, why do you pray in this prayer that God has graciously kept you this day? Okay, sure, he didn't have to, you could die at any time. Yeah, the, do you des, did you deserve the day that you were given? No, because every day is a gift, correct. That's why the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning is to thank the Lord that he has given you another day. And the last thing that you do before you sleep is to thank the Lord that he has given you the day that you just had. Uh, so God does it graciously because you definitely don't deserve to live for however many days you get. You don't deserve any of the days. The Lord gives them to you purely out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy, which is his grace. Um, into your hands I commend, or I, co I, yeah, I commend myself. Who are you? My body and soul and all things. Think about the first article of the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my eyes, ears, reason, senses, I, or, uh, and, and all my members, every part of me, and still takes care of them. Yeah. So this here, into your hands I commend myself. It's all tying into the role of God the Father as creator. What does it mean that he is creator? It also means then that he is sustainer. You cannot be the creator and then abandon. If you are creator, you have to sustain. That's one reason why the parental language of father is used. Because when you are a father and you have children, do you get to say, well, I did the reproductive act and I brought you into this world. Now fend for yourself and survival of the fittest, kid. And, you know, on the way out of the hospital, dump your newborn baby in the gutter and say, here's 10 bucks, best of luck to you. No, you have a responsibility now. Now, maybe when they get older, you'd like to do that to them, uh, which is all the more reason why the responsibility of your new role as father, and of course as mother, is important, that you are now tied to the, create, to the child of your, or, uh, of your begetting. You are tied, bound, to that child. So God sustains because he is creator. And he creates because he loves. And therefore he continues to sustain because he loves. Because every act of God, all the way back to creation, is rooted in his divine love. 
Uh, so who are you? My I am body and, and I am soul and I am ears and members and reason and senses and God, I entrust all of these to you. And in addition to everything that is myself, I also entrust in, into your care all things, every aspect of my life. What can I do to change current events? If you're like me, this is something that gets you really down because I look around and I say, all of this is so terrible, and what am I? I am a drop in a bucket. I am one person in, the, in northwest Missouri. What can I do? And of course, that question is vanity in and of itself, because the true question is, what can I give into the Lord, and how can I learn to trust the Lord more fully? And uh, so, we commend all things to God, everything, not just myself, but also everything else. And then finally, I just want to highlight this, let your holy angel be with me. Lutherans do believe in guardian angels, and they have since the time of Luther. So any Lutheran that tells you that guardian angels is a fantasy or made up or that the only evangelicals believe in that is kidding himself and misleading you. In fact, I can show you writings from the theologian Johann Gerhard, who has an entire treatise about guardian angels and what they do for you and why. Um, but you don't have to trust a Lutheran theologian. Just trust Jesus and the evangelists, because who ministers to Jesus? Angels. angels. Why do they minister to Jesus? Did you ever ask the question, why? What is it about Jesus that makes the angels come and minister to him? His humanity, exactly, because most people, that's a good answer, because typically if you ask that question, people say, well, because he's God. God doesn't need the ministration of angels. In, in, the, in the courts of heaven, the angels don't minister to God, they worship him, they sing his praise. They don't minister to him. He doesn't need it. Why is Jesus ministered to by angels? Because he is a man, which says, what about your humanity? Pardon me? You're weak and you need help all the time. Yes, yes, you're weak and you need help, but do you have help? Yes, you have the ministration of angels. The angels serve you also because you are the crown jewel of creation, not the angels. You have dominion over angels. They're not higher up on the totem pole than you. There isn't anybody higher up on the totem pole than you in creation except for God. You're like Joseph in the land of Egypt, second in command. Uh, so, you're praying that the Lord's angel would continue to watch over you. You pray that at, at the beginning of the day, that the Lord's angel would be with you throughout the day, and you pray that as you sleep, the Lord's angel would be with you, just like you pray that in the sort of the common children's evening prayer as well, and if I die before I wake. Uh, so, very good. Kids, you can go to Sunday school. Adults... Any questions about the verse of the week or the catechism? Okay. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it seems that I've heard something 
some theologian discussing about that. I said, forgotten. So, do you have a take on how that plays in other parts of the world? It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Problem. The problem there is a problem of translation, firstly, because when it comes when it comes to translating, you're not just translating languages; you're translating settings. Uh, so there is an example that I know of of a community that didn't know what a donkey was because they had never seen one, and so they translated something. They changed it from donkey to goat because then the people would understand and they got in trouble for it because they said, why don't you just teach them what a donkey is instead of changing what the scripture says? So the question becomes then, how do I translate scripture so that it is the most clear in the setting that I need it to be presented in but still maintaining the continuity of scripture? So that's a, that's a problem. If I were... And granted, I know next to nothing about that setting, so take this for what it is. But if I were in charge of translating something for that setting, I would still probably use bread, because bread might not be their staple, but they still, everybody knows what bread is, even if it isn't the staple. And of course, how do you have communion without bread? So when you're teaching in the churchly context, you can still talk about bread, which is also important because there is a Eucharistic element to that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. How often then did they have the Eucharist in the early church and on even to the Reformation? Daily. Actually, the Book of Concord says, we observe uh, or we receive the Lord's body and blood daily. They would have daily mass. Now, we have daily matins, but we have mass or the divine service or the Eucharist only once on the Sabbath, but they did it daily. And even when you read someone like Ambrose or Augustine, some of the church fathers, they talk about that petition of the Lord's Prayer in terms of the daily reception of the Eucharist, that how do we begin each day? We go to church, we hear the word of God, and we receive the body and blood of Jesus, and that's what gets us through our day. So in that sense, that's also daily bread but also everything that you need to support this body in life. So then in your explanation of praying the Lord's Prayer to a setting like that, that's where the catechism explanation comes in handy because it's not just talking about bread. So if rice is what your staple food is, then you still pray give us this day our daily bread, but your daily bread is rice. So anything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, okay, well, whatever those things may be, whatever kind of food becomes your staple, the thing that you live on, well, then that's what becomes your daily bread. But we also don't change the words to say, give us this day our daily rice. You know, because, because it, changes, it changes the complete meaning of the petition. It changes everything that it's supposed to connect to. It, ch it changes everything. Um, that's... This is why Chester, G.K. Chesterton and I get along very well, because G.K. Chesterton made a big point about arguing for, you know, splitting hairs about words. When people say, well, you're just splitting hairs, and he says, yes, I know exactly what I'm doing, and I'm splitting hairs on purpose, because when it comes to your vocabulary, Splitting words is, or splitting hairs is necessary because you don't want to lose 
the significance of the words that you're speaking and the meaning that they create. That's why the liturgy is the way it is in part, and you should be resistant to change that involves changing the language of the liturgy. Some changes are relatively innocuous, like changes from thee to you, although even that kind of a change, I think, uh, I think devalues it slightly. It sort of takes it down because you is the familiar. Like if I'm, I talk to you, or you know, where I come from, hey, you guys, and it's just everything is you. It'd be like if scripture started reading y'all, and you think, you're reading your good old King James Bible, and all of a sudden Jesus pops up and says, hey, all y'all, hear my words. And, he, and something just seems kind of off about that, doesn't it? Like, that's not, the way, that's not the way I expect to hear Jesus. And it's like when you come to church and you say, you know, you, 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 you. It's like, well, all right. I mean, I understand that's sort of the modern language, but it's also kind of more personal, and I don't know that that's... So even a small change like that that is, looks relatively innocuous actually has a bunch of meaning to it. Here's another one. Is it the Lord be with you and also with you? Or is it the Lord be with you? Yeah, see, you know the difference by whether I chant it or not, but I actually want to break you of that because I want you to, be, I want you to have the habit be that whenever the pastor gives you the salutation, which is the Lord be with you, that the response is always, and with thy spirit. Why? Because, and also with you, is something completely different than, and with your spirit, or and with thy spirit. Because, and I'll show you the difference, okay? You ready? Uh, the Lord be with you, and with thy spirit, and that means, yes, and as the Lord is with me through the proclamation of the gospel and through the administration of the sacraments, let it also be with you, pastor, in the spirit, and with thy spirit, which is the pastor's spirit, the spirit that, is, that rests upon you by virtue of the mantle of Christ that you bear in holy ordination which then goes on to mean, may you then continue to pronounce God's absolution to me, God's peace to me, God's word to me, and continue to provide God's sacraments to me. And when I say the Lord be with you, I, I mean may God continue to come to you through my office in all of these things that I am going to give you. There's a lot in there, isn't it? Now let's do it this way. The Lord be with you. Oh, so you are so well-behaved. I love it. Uh, okay, but uh, now let's do it the wrong way. Uh, the Lord be with you, and also with you. This is what and also with you is. Yeah, you too, guy. Hey, thanks. Period. That's all it is. It's like, it's like saying I love you and having your spouse say, yeah, you too. <laughs> Now, now you think about that, and then you come to church, and, and pastor says, Ah, oh, the Spirit of the Lord be with you. And you're like, hey, you know what? Yeah. You too, guy. Thanks. Hey. It's just, it's not the same thing. 
but on the outside it looks relatively innocuous. So, oh yeah, well give us this day our daily rice. Certainly that doesn't change anything because this setting understands rice. No, it changes everything. It doesn't mean anything if it's our daily rice. It doesn't mean anything. And then in order to make it mean something, who has to make it mean something? You. And, oh, well, you know, like many grains of rice, and then uh, all the things that, blah, blah, blah. whatever, I don't know. You could, you could easily make something up. If you ever went through college, uh, you get, you know, or, <laughs> I shouldn't say this. If you, if you ever went through college and had to take some of those written tests, or if you've ever dealt with filling out grant reports for the government, you get pretty good at completely making stuff up. <laughs> and, uh, you can sort of do that as a theologian too, where, where you know, oh yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna provide meaning to this. Which is then why the church tries to safeguard itself from doing that by the teachings of the fathers and the creeds. So that, yeah, you can provide meaning, but only within the, you know, you know only within the four walls of the box that the church has put you in. And that box that you live in is a good box because it actually keeps you safe. So anyway, that's a really long answer to your question, but I hope that I, I hope it was fulfilling to you. <laughs> uh, okay, any other quick questions? All right, here's the plan. Today we're gonna finish up on this uh, sexual immorality topic. Next week's a hymn Sunday. And then the week after that, what we're gonna basically probably, I estimate, spend the rest of the summer on is we're gonna get back to that to our study about death and dying. It's gonna be part two though, and this is, uh, this is the part everybody wants to talk about, which is what happens when you die, and where do you go, and what are things like? Those are all the big questions. So I'm working on that, we'll have that ready to go, but that means that today has to be the last day on this, which means I'm gonna really toss a bunch of stuff at you. Uh, you're free to interrupt me, of course, and ask questions if there's things that you don't understand, but there are a couple really big key points that I want to make. <clears throat> and before I do that, I also want to say one other thing, and that is, I, if you remember, if you're on church council or if you were at the voters' assembly meeting, I applied to the district for a grant for the library downstairs, which we got, so I've already spent all of the grant money getting more books for the library and getting some little improvements. So uh, you'll see all that when it comes. But what that means is uh, it ties in really well with the summer reading program that the church is hosting. So uh, double dip if you want with, the, with whatever local library you have. But the church has a reading program too. And I'll announce it at the end of church. But there's forms. Um, to record forms out in the narthex for this month's assignments for reading and uh, uh, I'd encourage you now that we're getting a, a massive influx all of that uh, was on children's books too the first batch is all children's books so there's there's going to be more books to choose from for you and your children to read so take advantage of the summer reading program I mean you get prizes for reading books and we we give you the books to read so you might as well do it um, so do that and enjoy the offerings, and there's more adult books that are going to be coming along too, quite, quite a massive amount of those as well. So um, keep your eyes peeled for that. Participate in the library. 
Tell your friends about the library. Anybody who wants to is welcome to come and use that um, whenever, they, whenever they would like. There's no late fees. There's no due dates. Just take a book and enjoy it, and then sh return it so more people can enjoy it. Okay. Right. So, 1 Corinthians 6. This is the verse that we're, that we're spending the rest of the time looking at. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Again, I'll give you my translation. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a man may commit is outside his body, but the sexually immoral sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were purchased with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We talked last week mostly about the fact that you are not your own, uh, which ties in with marriage, of course. You are not your own anymore. There is a sense of ownership. You don't belong to yourself. You do actually belong to your husband, and you do belong to your wife. Uh, you don't, your will is not yours. Your body is not yours. Nothing of you is yours. It's all the other person's. So in that same sense, there's this relational sense with God who has redeemed you and who has made you his own, the bridegroom, that you are not your own anymore. So why are you living like you are your own? But here is the, the thing we need to talk about today. This, everything else revolves and hinges on this. That is, what is meant by body? And I'm going to give you a little bit of insight. There are two words that are commonly associated with the body. I'm going to erase this so I can write them up on the board. These are going to be really important for you, especially if you ever want to read Huxley, Brave New World, which I would encourage you to do, by the way. Okay. Sorry, I get really uh, obsessive about the whiteboard. I don't like there to be little specks on it. <laughs> yeah, there, see? <laughs> All right, so the first one is soma. Soma, which just means body. Whoops, 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 whoops. There, body. <sighs> okay, soma is your body. So things like somatic, the word somatic, a, a, an experience of the body, somatic, that is, um, comes from this word soma. Psychosomatic, you know that medical term where you think that something happens to your body and then because you're so so focused on thinking about it happening that it happens. Like you can become, you can make yourself sick uh, because you think that you're so sick and you think it so, f you believe it so firmly that your body actually reacts to that and then your, your own body makes you sick because it thinks that you're supposed to be sick because you think that you're sick. So psychosomatic, the, uh, but it all comes from soma. Now the, where this ties in with Huxley is that the drug that the people are addicted to, that the government provides, that takes away all pain and all sorrow and makes everybody happy and docile and do whatever they're told, is called soma. So now you get, it. this is the reason, because it has to do with the body. 
in a, in a bad way. Now, the other one is Sarks. Uh, Sarks. And this means flesh. Sometimes these two terms are interchangeable. Uh, most of the time there are, there are slight differences and there are reasons why the, the different words are used. What St. Paul uses here is soma. So he's not talking about you sinning against your own sarks, your own flesh. He's talking about sinning against your soma, your body. What is important about the distinction? Think of it in terms of one of the big heresies of the church, which is Gnosticism. We've talked about that a lot. One of the reasons why the, the culture is so promiscuous nowadays is, and why it has endorsed it is because it has first endorsed the belief if, of Gnosticism or some of the tenets of Gnosticism. Do you remember what Gnosticism is? I'll give it to you in its most simple sense. Flesh and material things, bad. Attaining spirit, a higher spiritual existence, good. So, why is it important that Paul uses body instead of just flesh when he talks about how you sin against yourself? Yes. Yes, correct. So in terms of Gnosticism, your flesh is just material, which is why then you can say something like, well, you only live once, so beat up the body or do whatever you want to do to it. Or you can say like Lady Gaga in her song, do whatever you want with my body, uh, just don't touch my mind. Why? Because the mind is something higher. The body doesn't matter. Why, here, the, it's the transgender movement that you see, too. The body does, is not the thing that matters. The flesh isn't the thing that matters. It's the feeling, the identity that matters. That's Gnosticism, because it separates one from the other and says that they're two distinct things, when in reality, they're not. You are body and soul together. You are body, you are soul, you are will. You are the union of all of these things together. By the way, this is something uh, you don't really hear very often. I talked with the youth group actually about transgenderism. We watched a great movie in a series of little documentaries put out by a great group in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but the, the question that I asked the youth group is this, and this is how you start to see the relationship of body and soul and will that is different in reality than it is from the Gnosticism which separates them and says one, the flesh is bad but the, the higher transcendent is good. Um, do you have the biological characteristics of men and women because you are a man or a woman? Or is it the other way around? What makes you a man or a woman? The fact that you have the biological characteristics? Or do the biological characteristics simply reflect that you are man or woman? 
This is the mistake that most people fall into, even in the church, when trying to deal with the, the issue of transgender, because they start using terms like biological. Well, how do, what is a woman? Well, a biological blah, 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 or you are not a biological male, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but all of that is scientific terminology. A boy doesn't come out having a little bit extra, uh, and then you say, oh, because the boy has a little extra, he will be a boy. That's not the indication of who you are. Your body is a reflection of who you are, which means that the identifying characteristics of your body are only there because they are reflecting the fact that you are a man or you are a woman. Your body is not the determining factor. Your body is the reflection of who you are. So you are a man or you are a woman much further down than just your body. God made man, and he made man from the dust of the earth and fashioned him. Man exists before God fashions him. Do you see this? But what does man look like? This is what man looks like. The body is important. Soma, in this sense, is referring to the fullness of your person. Whereas if St. Paul said, well, sexual immorality sins against the flesh, you can say, okay, fine, yeah, there's like gluttony. Does gluttony sin against your flesh? Yes, okay, because you're not taking care of your body. This is, somebody once asked, why would you ban somebody from communion? Why would you institute a minor ban and not let them commune if they're cohabiting with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but you wouldn't institute a minor ban if somebody was morbidly obese and obviously not taking care of their body. Isn't that the same? Because St. Paul says your body is a temple of the Lord. And no, it isn't the same. Here is the distinction. Sinning against the body, sinning against the flesh. Sexual promiscuity, sexual immorality sins against the body, the totality of your person, not just against the flesh. Which also means that the Lord, your, your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit means more than just your flesh as a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is really, really, really important for Christians to understand. This is, one, this is how we combat Gnosticism. And then you look at what Gnosticism says. That's why I keep telling you this. Gnosticism looks at the body and separates it from the person. You can do, I can do whatever I want with my body. I can exhibit my body however I want and let others treat it however I want uh, because the body's not me. Wrong! I mean, you're kind of right. You're, you are more than your body, but your body is a part of you. You can't separate yourself from your body. Uh, so there's a, there's a quote from the Proverbs, Proverbs 13.9, lust indulged starves the soul. Well, how do you indulge lust? Come on, this isn't hard. How do you indulge lust? Think, give, yeah, but what does it mean to give in to lust? Take action. Think about, listen, I'm going to give you a whole new spin on something Jesus said. And frankly, uh, I am sorry that I heard it this way and also not sorry from a seminary professor. 
talking to a whole group of guys at the seminary, when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, well, now think about that in terms of sexual immorality. If your eye causes you to sin, and if your hand causes you to sin, think about what that means. Your eyes are the things that let you in inviting things in and then acting upon the lust. You're giving incarnation to lust. You're taking it into your body and you're manifesting it through your body in how you behave. Now, is that something that only impacts your body, your flesh? No! Proverbs! Lust indulged starves the soul. Remember this, friends. Uh, what's good for the body is also good for the soul. Should you exercise and take, you know, have a, a, a relatively healthy diet and take care of your body? Yes, you should. Everybody knows that. That's why I, that's why I don't like going to the doctor, because I always know what the doctor's going to say. You should take better care of yourself. Everybody knows that. It's like going to the dentist and having the dentist say, you know, you really should floss more. I don't need to hear it. I already know that. I know, I know, I know. You know, everybody at the doctor and at the dentist becomes that teenage child. Mom, I know. <laughs> I already know this. I know I need to, and I just don't. But, you know, what's good for your body, taking good care of your body, is also good for your soul. And what's good for your soul is also good for your body, which is why, little known fact, actually, by most Missouri Synod Lutherans, what your Lutheran confessions say in black and white about the sacrament of the altar, the Eucharist, the body and blood of Jesus, is your body will be healed by this. Because it's not just something that affects your soul, it's also something that's for your body. St. Paul said it too. Why are, why are the Corinthians getting sick and dying? Because they're sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. The body and blood of Jesus causes harm to the body as it causes harm to the soul when received in impenitence and unbelief. So what is good for the body is good for the soul and vice versa. But also what is bad for the body is also bad for the soul and vice versa. Why? Why is that the fact? And I'll give you an example while you think about it. If you live your life and you never pray, I will tell you the kind of person that you are going to be. You will be a sad person. You will be a depressed person. You will be on medication. And this is not, I'm not saying that if you do pray, then that magically gets rid of all, like, your mental medication. But you look at the, the rate of even children in our society currently that takes antidepressants, you look at the, the things in the world around you and you are a discouraged person. You are a person who walks around with a great burden and a great weight on your shoulders all the time and you don't enjoy life. But prayer is a spiritual thing, isn't it? I don't know. You tell me. Is it? Uh, so there's your example. And then if you are the person who is very disciplined about your prayer, here's what's going to happen. 
If you are a person currently that doesn't pray and then you start, your first couple weeks are going to be really hard. It, your life is going to be a lot harder when you start praying regularly than it was when you weren't praying, and the temptation is going to be, I'm just done with this. I'm done trying to keep up with this stupid prayer. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm just going to go back and be miserable. But once you get into the discipline of it, you're going to start noticing some things. The sun shines a little brighter. The burden on your back is a little lighter. The unhappiness and the despair that you have with you sort of starts to melt away. But that's all bodily stuff, isn't it? And prayer is a spiritual thing, isn't it? I don't know. How can you separate the two? That's the point I'm making. How do you separate the two? How do you separate the body and the soul? How do you separate the flesh from the person? You can't, but that's what Gnosticism seeks to do. Well, okay, yeah, death. <laughs> but death doesn't destroy the person either, though. Okay. Sexual immorality destroys the person. That's what St. Paul is saying. Every other sin, and uh, oh, actually, yeah, I want to read you something. Um, blah, 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 So much blah. I'm just trying to find one thing. Okay, yeah, this guy did a translation, another commentator. You, you don't, it doesn't matter who he is. And this is, I just really liked him. He said, this is his translation. Flee, therefore, sexual immorality, while in every other case imaginable, a person's sins are, in one sense, separate from the physical body. The one who sins sexually actually conducts a direct destructive attack upon his own body. Think about that. Uh, there's also, there's another quote that I wanted uh, to share with you, and I can't find it. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, so, you're, you're destroying the, your person in a way that you're not destroying your person with other sins. Because you're hurting another individual, um, either in body or in spirit or in mind, mind or will. Um, and then other sins, you know, you can sin against your body, your flesh, flesh, like gluttony or sloth. You're sinning against your flesh. Um, and you can sin against your will, but you're sinning against the entirety of your person when it comes to sexual sins. You're destroying your flesh. You're destroying your soul. You are starving your soul of all that is good, and you're destroying your will because you become a slave of the passions. That's the only kind of sin that causes that, those kinds of troubles. Why do you think? Let me just ask you this hypothetical question. If you go through the Bible and you tally all of the accounts of something bad that happens as a, as a result of sexual promiscuity, what sin is the dominant sin throughout the entire course of Scripture, both Old and New Testament? I don't mean, I don't mean specifically, but... I mean, sins against the Sixth Commandment. Sins against chastity, which, which are, you know... Sex, sins of the sexual, sexual, sexually immoral. That's the number one sin. And I'll, I'm going to give you a hint right now. What's, what's the number two sin, by the way? Sex and money. What are the two things that get pastors, bishops, priests, and the laity in trouble more than anything else? 
Sex and money, in that order. But why is sex number one? One, because you're a physical person and you want it. Let's just get down to it, okay? I'm not going to beat around the bush. You are a physical person. You are designed physically in your flesh a certain way. J.R. Tolkien says that man is not monogamous naturally. This is some of J.R. Tolkien has some of the best wedding advice I have ever read. I always give it out in premarital catechesis to talk with um, prospective couples about that. Because he says two things. The first thing he says is man is not naturally monogamous, which means what? What do you want to do? Pardon me? Get it anywhere else. Do you want to settle with just one other person? No. You, you know, there are lots of attractive people in the world, and you could have lots of adventures in life with lots of different kinds of attractive people. And that's what you want. Because you're not naturally monogamous. To settle down with one person and to restrict yourself in that sense is difficult. It requires, as Tolkien says, a supreme act of the will. It's discipline. And we've got a culture that's immature and doesn't want to exercise discipline, and also a culture that is more uh, focused on using rather than enjoying. Remember the difference. I want to love you because I get something out of you, and then when I don't get anything out of you, then I'll go to somebody else who will. But then you're not loving another person, you're loving yourself. And you're taking from another person instead of giving. Um, Tolkien also says... If you look at your spouse and you ask yourself the serious question, is there somebody who is more my soulmate than this person I married? The answer is yes. Could you have found somebody that was better than the person that you're married to? Yes. Yes, you could have, and you still could. And Tolkien says, Many people make, think that they have made a mistake when they get married. And it's true. You've made the biggest mistake of your life. Because you've now restricted yourself. You have bound yourself. Now, to stay together, which you are obliged to do, you must exercise a supreme degree of will and discipline. But it doesn't really matter, he says, that you could have found somebody better. Because now the only thing that matters is what is. Could you have found a better spouse? Absolutely you could have. And everybody, everybody, if they're being honest with themselves, could say that. Is my soulmate really out there? Absolutely. But, and this is how Tolkien concludes it, the only soulmate that matters is the one you are with now. And that one is your true soulmate by virtue of the fact that you are with them now. <clears throat> Here's another shocking thing about marriage. I said this just on Sunday. You should have seen this young couple. Young couples are great, aren't they? <laughs> They're so cute. I said, I know I'm young too, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. We're, I'm, I'm, almost four years married, but we're definitely out of the honeymoon period, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Things are great, by the way, don't worry about us. 
uh, couldn't, be, couldn't be happier. No, but so you, you tell this young couple, here's something that Luther said, and it, it wouldn't have had to be Luther, it could have been anybody. Luther said, I didn't love Catherine when I married her, but because I was married to her, I learned to love her. Here's the, the fact of the matter, and I think anybody who's been married, you know, I think, I think you, you continue learning this the more mature you get in your marriage. But after a few years in marriage, you, you already realize this, and that is, you know, how, how do you answer the question, did you really love each other when you got married? You didn't. You thought that you did because you associated love with one thing. That doesn't mean that you didn't have feelings for each other and that you didn't care about each other, but if we're gonna really talk about what it means to love, did you truly love each other at that moment? No, you didn't. But by uniting yourselves to each other, you have learned to love each other, which is why, you know, 60 years into a marriage, you have a stronger bond than you did at the beginning. You understand on a much more fundamental and on a much deeper level what it really means to love than you did on the day that you got married when you were all happy and dressed up and young. You know, you grow and you mature and you learn what it really is to love. Because you can't just get married and say, you know, you say I love you, but you can't just get married and have it be like that. It grows, it matures, and it deepens. Um, here's the problem then with promiscuity when St. Paul says that, uh, you know, don't you know that you become one flesh? When you, when you join yourself to somebody, you become one flesh with them. Here's a detriment to your marriage. How do you give of yourself fully when you've already given bits of yourself away? Can you take back the bits of yourself that you give in becoming one flesh with whomever? Can you get it back? No, you can't. Once you give of yourself, you can never get it back. So you end up being like, if you've read Harry Potter, you end up becoming sort of like Voldemort who breaks up his soul into a bunch of different pieces and stashes them away. And that's what you become because you've broken yourself and you've given bits of yourself all over. And then when it comes time for you to actually get married and to, and to you know, be with somebody and give yourself fully, how much of you can you give? Only as much of you as you have left. But you can't give any more than that. That's a problem. Because it hurts the idea of one flesh. You're hurting the body, which is the person. And in marital language, the person is actually the one flesh person. I've said this before, but the early church was so, uh, put so much gravity on marriage as the union and, and the idea of one flesh that divorce was also seen, I mean, as an affront, but also as uh, murder. Because divorce was the the killing of the person. So infidelity, sexual promiscuity, pornography, all of those things that feed into sexual immorality, they, all, they don't only hurt the body of the individual, as in the whole person, but they also hurt the whole person of the, the current or any prospective marital person, marital body. Here's the other thing, and I, this I really do want to share with you. Uh, 
Sexual immorality is, according to St. John Chrysostom, a literal act of sleeping with the devil and becoming one flesh, one flesh with Satan. He says that it is, this is not figurative. I know the word literally is overused nowadays, <clears throat> much to my dismay. It's literally raining outside. <gasps> you don't say it's not figuratively raining. <laughs> you mean if I go out there, I'm going to get wet? Boy, that just bugs me. It's literally a table. Oh, good, I thought it was only figuratively a table. You mean I can put stuff on it? And it's not going to fall because it's literally a table? But it is, uh, but St. John Chrysostom means this in the full sense. It is literally the act of quite literally sleeping with the devil and literally becoming one flesh with Satan. Sinning against the person. Why does it matter that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Because if you become one flesh with Satan, what are you doing? You're the traitor who goes to the back gate on a bribe and opens the door and lets the Trojan horse come in. Let's the enemy in. Hey, thanks for the gold. Just remember me, okay? Don't kill me and my family. Everybody else you can have. That's what you, that's what you do. So this is, I have this whole big quote from uh, John Chrysostom. And I want to, uh, I want to read it to you because it's really good. For supposing you had a daughter and in extreme madness had let her out to a procurer for hire and made her live a harlot's life, and then a king's son were to pass by and free her from that slavery and join her in marriage to himself. You could have no, excuse me, you could have no power thenceforth to bring her into the brothel. For you gave her up once for all and sold her. Such as this is our case also. We let out our own flesh for hire unto the devil, that grievous procurer. Christ saw it and set it free and withdrew it from that evil tyranny. It is not then ours any more, but his who delivered it. If you be willing to use it as a king's bride, there is none to hinder. But if you bring it where it was before, you will suffer just what they ought who are guilty of such outrages. Think about that. All of this ties into the idea of you not, your body is not your own. You are purchased with a price. Your flesh is not your own. Your person is not your own. Uh, this, is, this is the other thing I want to read. Yeah, here's the quote I was looking for. For Paul, to sin against the body is to commit acts of destructive bodily, which is also personhood, violation. Other sins may be physically destructive, like suicide or gluttony, corporately destructive, like gossip and divorce. Those are corporately destructive because they destroy more than the two people involved. Or uh, spiritually defiling, like idolatry. But sec uh, because sexual sin is uniquely body-joining, it is also uniquely body-defiling in a way that nothing else is. Um, let me, I'm going to end with this one quote. This is a fantastic quote from the Screwtape Letters, which again is a book that every Christian should read at least three times. Here's why. Because the first time you read it, you chuckle to yourself and you go, boy, this is really creative and silly. I, this is funny. The second time you read it, you go, oh, I don't remember. Huh, this is not as funny as I thought it was. And then the third time you read it is the, is the time when it really hits home and you get chalk white at the end of it going, oh my goodness, 
I know that this is sort of autobiographical from C.S. Lewis's perspective about identifying the devil working in his own life, but holy smokes, every single te temptation and strategy that the devil uses, I can identify in my own life. And then it's not funny anymore. Because then you realize it's really, it really is a matter of life and death. So at least three times you need to read that book. Now, here's the quote. This is from Uncle Screwtape. This is in his letter to his nephew. This is, this is how to, you know, he's the one that's giving all the advice about how to, be Christ, or how to beat the enemy, as he calls God and, and his Christians. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine of each thing that exists and specially of each man. Men will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. At present, the enemy says mine of everything on the pedantic ground that he made it. Our father hopes in the end to say mine of all things on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest. You are not your own, never. Even if you sin, you are not your own. Either you belong to Satan or you belong to Christ, but you never, ever, ever, not once, never belong to yourself. What the point that Screwtape is making in this letter is, God says he owns you right now because he made you and because he has redeemed you. And the devils are not satisfied with that. What they want is to say that you are theirs, and the way they're going to do it is by waging war and by conquering you. And this is one of the easiest ways for them to do that, to take you over completely through your eyes, through the incarnation of your sexual proclivities and immoral behavior. We're just going to call that there. That's pretty much what I wanted to cover. Any questions about any of that? I know that's, that was a lot. Channel 5 has been having some things on to uh, determine if your spouse is fooling around somewhere else. One of them, they have an extra phone that hmm. they use. They also use the ATM instead of using money out of their checking or whatever. They change their hair. They change their clothes. And there was one other one. I'm not sure if it was uh, they want to go to the conventions by themselves. One thing I'll say to that, yes, are there, are there signs? Well, sure, there's signs of everything. But here's the deeper reality. When you give of yourself fully and freely and you receive of another fully and freely, do you notice when all of a sudden you're not receiving the fullness? You can always tell. There's a, there's a deeper reality than that. By the time you get to the point where you're saying, well, he has two, or like, you know, in the movie Airplane, he never has a second cup of coffee at home. You know, when, by the time you're getting to that point, those are simply the manifestations of something that already deep down you know because you can feel it. It's not so much a matter of I need evidence. It's a, it's a matter of the heart, that you can, you can feel it. 
because you know what it is to give and to receive freely and fully. And when it isn't happening, you know it. And, and you can tell. So that's, I mean, good on the news, I guess, for being busybodies, but, uh, <laughs> but there's better ways. Anyway, we'll see you at the altar.